Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Chad Aldis, the Vice President of Ohio Policy here at the Fordham Institute, joins us to discuss the impending cessation of ESSER funds. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating the competitive effects of charter schools on traditional public schools in Florida. All of this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Wait, you said Chad was right. We, uh, now you're saying I'm wrong. You're both wrong. Yeah, you're both managing to be wrong. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Chad Aldis. Chad, welcome back to the show. It's great to be on. Yeah, Chad is our Vice President of Ohio Policy here at Fordham. Also, the previous uh, and somewhat short-lived State Superintendent in the great state of Iowa. It's great to have you back, Chad. It's great to be back at Fordham and uh, lots of great work going on in the Buckeye State. All right. Okay. Also joining us, as always, my regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, this is going to be a pleasure, gang, because we asked Chad to come on here and have one of our classic Fordham Institute intramural debates. We almost need a special song for that one. Uh, We like to debate things at Fordham. We don't like to have a single party line. So, for example, over the years, we've had team growth versus team proficiency. That's been a heated one. Uh, We've got different points of views on on lots of things. Uh, Private school choice, I think it's fair to say. David and I don't see quite eye to eye on that. You keep saying that, despite the fact that I never take the bait, Mike. I know. I know. Well, that's I, I keep trying. I keep trying. Uh, but today we're going to talk about spending, and in particular, the coming end of the federal ESSER dollars. Uh, Chad's going to play the stingy curmudgeon, and I'm going to argue that, well, hey, maybe it's too early to be tight-fisted uh, with our money. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Chad, you wrote a great piece lately, uh, recently for us that said, hey, people, you know, stop the belly aching about uh, the so-called cut in education spending that's coming because the federal funds, $190 billion worth, are going to dry up soon, the ESSER dollars. We all knew this was coming. I think you even said it's right there in the name. The E stands for emergency, right? That's exactly right. And yet you've got people in your own state of Ohio and around the country, districts especially, who are now saying, oh, woe is us. The sky is falling. Uh, The money is drying up. And now we're going to have to cut staff and programs and all these great things that we were doing. Tell us what's wrong with that thinking. Well, the biggest problem is uh, they didn't listen very well when they received those dollars. Uh, The program itself and all of the experts, uh, most notably, of course, Marguerite Rosa at the Edgenomics Lab, made it very clear. These dollars should be used on non-recurring expenses. They should be used to address the issues caused by the pandemic, but not to incur long-term continuing obligations. So if you're a district and you handle that and listen to the advice that was very widely available, you should be fine. If you hired a lot of new staff, if you gave permanent pay raises to existing staff, and if you signed long-term expensive service contracts with vendors, then if for you, the sky may well be falling. But at the end of the day, we can't reward bad behavior. 
Okay. And uh, and so you say, for example, then if, if people were doing some short-term programs, let's say summer programs or tutoring, but they made sure that they weren't on the hook for long-term expenses. Okay. I would say same thing with HVAC, right? We've discussed that on the show a little bit, that it, that maybe was the kind of thing that you can have a big one-time expense. It's done and then it's over. All right. But let me push back here, Chad, because... Uh, while everything you said is is true, it is also the case that we still have millions of kids out there who are still way, way behind as compared to where they would have been where if the pandemic hadn't happened, you know, comparing them to their peers pre-pandemic. And in fact, as I believe we've covered on the show, uh, we've even seen some studies saying that the kids still coming into our schools, still coming into kindergarten, are behind where their older brothers and sisters were pre-pandemic. Uh, that, you know, even though they they didn't miss out on school, and for these kids now, they didn't even necessarily miss out on preschool. They were too young, right? They were babies. They were toddlers uh, during the pandemic, but they must have missed out on something. I don't know if it was their parents were stressed out. I don't know if it was that they, they weren't getting some of the childcare, you know, that they weren't getting the socialization that maybe would have happened otherwise. But for whatever reason, when you look at some of these assessments we can do with tiny tykes, they're behind where they would have been. And so, you know, if, if the point is, hey, as a country, we want to try to make the COVID generation whole and we want to actually get back to the point where more kids are progressing through school on grade level. It is not the time to stop doing the summer program and the tutoring and, you know, the reading coaches and all the uh, intense stuff that ESSER has allowed districts to do. Well, and I think, um, unfortunately, one of the flaws in ESSER as the program was designed was the lack of any adequate tracking about what actually is being done. And, you know, there have been some, some heroic efforts to try to track how these dollars were spent. But quite honestly... I'm not particularly confident when I survey the landscape that many districts extended school years. I don't know that many uh, created a longer learning day. I don't know that many actually have high dosage tutoring that checks the boxes for the stuff that's actually the type of tutoring that actually raises student achievement. So we've spent all these dollars in a manner that is not necessarily likely to lead to increased student achievement. And then we're wondering why student achievement didn't improve. And, you know, so if we were to engage, hypothetically speaking, in another round of spending, it should it should come again from the feds. Quite honestly, I don't see the feds getting much of anything done. I'm really concerned about the feds writing a check in 2020 and 2021 that in 2025 states that have to have a balanced budget are required to cash, that they're required to pay for, for, for the long-term debts. And that's the point I was making the thing. It's not whether we should debate whether more spending should be done now. But if we do more spending, we need to track it. We need to actually make sure that it's being used for those things that will boost student achievement. There need to be standards around that, which in every place I've looked were sorely lacking. Mm -hmm. No, but it's interesting. I mean, it is fun to play out that hypothetical. Of course, knowing the dysfunction in Washington right now, as well as the budget situation. Maybe it's crazy to think about extra money. Certainly some groups on the left are still hoping for it. But, you know, what if it wasn't automatic, right? The the money before the ESSER money was all by formula. Everybody got it. You could move it to a competitive program and say, okay, uh, you know, states and or districts, show us the evidence that you spent the last tranche of money well, that it made some difference for kids in terms of learning loss and, and the other priorities, 
Uh, and if and that you're going to keep spending the money on things that are going to matter, if you can do that, uh, then maybe we'll be willing to put more money in. Uh, but frankly, that's going to be a pretty tough sell for a lot of districts because, as you say, they didn't track uh, the spending very effectively. Or, you know, I don't know that they've got the evaluations in place to show that what they did do made it made a difference. I don't know. David, what what do you think? Yeah, I think you're both wrong, obviously. I'm going to find a way to <laughs> I mean. Chad, uh, I agree with essentially everything that you said. I, I just don't think, you know, politics when push comes to shove is a morality play, right? I mean, some of the things you described, right, like higher salaries for teachers, I, you're right that there's nothing that anyone said that made anyone think, should have made anyone think that that was something that was on the table. At the same time, that strikes me as a, a, a pretty defensible use of public funds if you care about public education. So to me, the question isn't, you know, what were people told four years ago? It's, well, should teacher salaries be higher? Right. And that's sort of an evergreen question. Mike, you're also wrong. Uh, you know, you make the point that people. Wait, you said Chad was right. We, uh, now you're saying I'm wrong. You're both wrong. Yeah, you're both managing to be wrong, right? Um, and that's because there's there's really no rational place to land. You're saying that kids are behind where they should be, right? And that's true. And it was also true five years ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And so if that's your standard, you know, we should just pour more money into education constantly, right? Because we always have a need. Like, we always have kids who are behind where they should be. So I don't know. To me, the real question is basically, like, is this is this sort of the right use of public funds, right? Full stop. Uh, you know, there is obviously an opportunity cost, both in terms of taxation and other spending, things like, I don't know, Medicare, Medicaid, yada, yada, yada. It's it's a giant sort of scope of government, you know, prioritization of spending kind of question. I don't know. I just I I think I think it's 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 sort of hard to resolve. And I'm not sure it's the right way to think about it. Um, to, to ask whether we should do what we, we've done, you know, the last five years again. And and at the end of the day, my message was for those state policymakers around the country, just reminding them that they didn't create this problem. They should learn what they can from the data that of what worked and what didn't work in their states during the pandemic in terms of helping kids catch up and then make strategic, smart decisions. What they shouldn't do is let this all become a circus in September, and when the next round of the state budget comes, where where it, it is a free-for-all, and they're they're fighting in straw men of problems created that they had nothing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, and, and I think the question for the rest of us in, in wonky world, uh, including the Margaret Roses uh, and, and the like, is to say, what could you cut in order to make room for investments that seem to be making a difference. So if high doses tutoring is something that really does seem to be getting a payoff still, if you do it a certain way, if you said, Chad, check the boxes, uh, you know, what could you do to make room for that in the regular school budget and in the regular model, right? That just becomes a part of the model. And of course, it's not brand new. It's, you know, Title I programs have been doing tutoring since they began. So, uh, you know, but are there some things that we're wasting money on that we can cut so that we can make these investments that matter? You know, summer school, if you get the right kids to show up for summer school, the kids who really need it can be a valuable uh, investment, but you got to do it right. Uh, so uh, that that is now the challenge. Uh, it doesn't mean there's, you know, look, there's going to be some pain. I mean, there's no doubt. But uh, schools aren't the only place where this is happening. You know, other 
government agencies got various funding during the pandemic that's going away. And I don't know if you've all noticed, but it seems like every day there's news of some private sector corporation that's laying people off. You know, this is a time when people are tightening their belts and education is no different. All right. Well, Chad, thank you for coming on the show. It's been too long. Hope we'll have you come by uh, sometime soon again so you can play your uh, stingy curmudgeon role. Whenever you need me to have somebody to argue with, just bring me back on. I'm happy to happy to play that part. All right. Good to know. And hey, folks, another thing we haven't mentioned in a while, if you enjoyed the conversation, make sure to follow the show on your preferred streaming platform uh, and leave us a five-star review. That would be great. We haven't asked for that kind of plug in a while, but wherever you listen to your podcast, that would be helpful and help us get the word out. Tell your friends, family, colleagues about the Education Gadfly show. That would be great. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So here we are, President's Day week. Uh, you know, I was reminded that, that five years ago, I wrote this blog post with the help, I think, of some research interns to try to find out how many schools were named after American presidents. Do you remember who's got the most schools named after him? I thought Washington. Nope. Nope. Lincoln. It's got to be. It's Lincoln. Lincoln. It's Lincoln. Yeah. yeah okay. At the time, I had some fun pointing out that if you don't count Trump University, uh, there were no schools named after the then president, Donald Trump. But now I can point out that as far as I can tell, there also are not any schools yet named after President Joe Biden. And I thought maybe there'd be one in, in Delaware. They name a lot of stuff after him in Delaware. But as as far as I can tell, no Biden uh, elementary or middle or high school. But people tell me if I'm wrong. So <laughs> I don't think it's a little early in both cases, Mike. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe. But, you know, by this time in Barack Obama's term, there were several Barack Obama schools. Uh, it was a little bit like the Nobel Prize with Barack Obama. They didn't wait long. All right. So what you got for us this week, Amber? Um, I have a new study by David Figlio and colleagues that examines how an increase in access to charter schools in 12 districts in Florida affects outcomes for kids remaining in the traditional schools. So in other words, a competitive effects study. Uh, we got a few of these, including by uh, by by your co-host. So uh, we'll see um, you know, how these results pan out to studies that Fordham has published. But what's new here is the methodology. They've got one based on sibling groups, not identical twins, Mike, but sibling groups, and access to birth data. Uh, as well as an attempt to assess whether competition from private schools contributes to or substitutes for competition from charter schools. So that's the new wrinkles. Uh, the 12 districts serve about 13% of the students in their jurisdictions, whereas Florida charter school sector serves about 12% in the entire state. So they're like, eh, maybe maybe these you know results may apply to the whole state. Uh, the study includes student level administrative data for students in these dozen districts merged to birth record data, which includes parental education and income for all Florida students born in Florida between 1992 and 2002. They have data on students from 2000 to 2017 school years. They measure competition through a charter density uh, approach, mainly, 
which captures the number of charter schools within a five-mile radius. The study uses three different analytical methods. I'm going to try to go through these quickly. Um, the first is a student-by-school fixed effects model that uses each student as their own comparison group. So that's, you know, you've got a student's relative performance in a year where their school faces little charter competition as compared to their own performance in a year where a charter faces more competition. Uh, the second is an instrumental variables model that they're trying to control better for student sorting. So in a nutshell, they're utilizing comparisons to a single average competition measure for each student based on the predict predicted charter competition that the student will be exposed to based on students born in a given zip code, in a given cohort, with a bunch of controls. The third model is the last sibling grade school effects model where siblings serve as comparisons for each other. These models compare the outcomes of two or more siblings, each attending a given grade level in the same traditional public school in different years. Analysts determine whether the outcomes of students who attend a given grade in a given school are systematically better or poorer when the school experiences more charter competition compared to their siblings attending the same grade in the same school under conditions of lighter charter competition. Woo. Wow. Wow. This is David Figlio and colleagues. And let's just put, you know, to, to be clear about why this is also important, tell, tell me if this sounds right. Like, I always wonder with these competitive effect studies, you know, if you say, oh, well, charter schools have a positive competitive effect. It means the kids uh, left behind in traditional public schools are doing better. But then I always wondered, well, what if it's just that the, the lower performing kids move to the charter school? And so automatically it means that the kids that remain are higher performing. Is, is that the issue they're trying to get at that issue? They're trying That's to get at part that. of the issue they're trying to get at, at sorting, right? And, they, and the composition effects. That's right. Um, but the siblings analysis, you know, what's cool about that also is that you're controlling for these unobserved family characteristics, Mike, that we've never got a handle on either. So, you know, parental expectations or, you know, are they helping you with your homework because they have a PhD or, you know, whatever. So that's the other big piece of this in the siblings analysis that we've got that we haven't had before. All right. Got it. Got it. Hey, David, in our next study, we should totally do this also. <laughs> what a lovely idea, Mike. <laughs> In looking across all three models, they find that competition stemming from the opening of a new charter school improves reading, reading, but not math, performance. And it also decreases absenteeism of students who remain in the TPS. Now they're going to drill down on the siblings analysis because it's more conservative. They say this is kind of like, think of it like the lower bound uh, set of results. And that one finds specifically that an increase of 10 charter schools within five miles would be associated with a 0 0.035 standard deviation increase in reading, which is modest. But then they're like, well, you know what? 10 charter schools expanding, is that really possible? So they reestimate with a one school increase. And for math, results or again, not statistically statistically significant. For reading, they are. Uh, the effect size is 0.35% of a standard deviation and significant reduction in absenteeism of 0.74% of the sample mean. Again, 
0.35% of a standard deviation. Some might say, okay, that's kind of modest. Analysts say that that compares, however, to the voucher impacts they found in Florida through a, uh, an earlier study. Subgroup analysis shows that absence results are null for Black students, but charter competition is associated with reduction in absences for White and Hispanic students. Test score results by subgroup depend largely on the model, but at least one of them shows a statistically negative effect for white students. And then finally, they look at whether competitive effects of charter schools are muted or magnified by private school penetration. I just don't have time to get into how they measured that, <laughs> but <laughs> results are statistically insignificant regardless of the level of private school saturation or model. For reading, so for math, it's a no-go. Uh, for reading, the positive results between charter competition and achievement seem to be driven by the schools facing a larger degree of private school competition. So in other words, more is better, whether it's from charters or private schools. But again, that's only in the sibling analysis. The other two were kind of, you know, nothing. Uh, and then they say, well, but they look at absences. They find that charter effects are larger when there's less private school competition in the local area. But again, it depends on the model. So they're kind of like, eh, we advise caution in all of these results. But the safest thing they can say is that um, they can reject that more private school competition in places with lots of charter competition harms student outcomes. Uh, that's a lot. What do we think about all all that good stuff? David, you you really are the expert on this topic. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. I think these guys are the experts, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it aligns with what we think we know, unless I miss something, which is that the effects are neutral to very slightly positive. I I mean, I got to be honest, right? Like my my gut feeling is that the effects might be. I mean, for all practical purposes, these are really small effects. In, in my personal opinion. Um, and so the takeaway message isn't that this is how we're going to fix education, honestly. Like uh, my my personal feeling has always been, you know, we, we, we've got to create more charter schools or more, you know, high performing private schools or do something differently in the public schools because this just isn't enough to move the needle, right? Even if it's across 95% um, of kids or whatever it is, it's not bad, right? Um, but it's not the sort of thing, as I understand it, that's, that folks were sort of hoping for in the early days, right, of of school reform, um, which is that, you know, these um, complacent districts would be a kick in the pants and, and really up their game. I don't think that's a fair interpretation of the results, even though they're positive. Yeah. The, though, on the flip side, you know, opponents of charter schools and school choice continue to make the argument that these uh, options hurt the traditional public schools. That is their line. That is the one that pulls well. That is the one that moves public opinion because most people have their kids in public schools or still like the idea of public schools. And that's just not true. That's not flat out is not true. The kids in traditional public schools are not harmed, at least in terms of their performance, their academics, their attendance. Uh, and that's important as well. I, I do wonder, Amber, I don't know if they got into any of this, but this question of, you know, is Florida special, especially at the time that they were studying it? Um, I mean, this is a state that one thing has made strong gains in achievement. So this could be a kind of a rising tide in all these sectors, right? It's also a place where the teacher unions are very weak. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know, is that a factor? I mean, I guess I just, 
you know, I, I wonder how, and, and you might have thoughts on this too, David, you know, is this applicable to the rest of the country? Nothing's ever applicable, Mike. I mean, it, it's, we're, we're trying to, you know, build the case for general principles that are never going to work in every instance, right? That That's kind of how I see it, right? But, but but it's similar to what you find in other states or in national studies. Amber? I was just going to say, I think it is a bit of a unicorn given the, you know, that percentages of kids attending, um, you know, charters in Florida. Uh, what did they, what did they say across the state? It was 12%, you know, and so, you know, it is higher than, in, than in other states. All right. Well, that is going to have to be all of it for us today, especially since that was such a complicated study to cover, Amber, but nicely done. I think I have sort of a sense of of what they did. And and it, it does feel like the the literature continues to grow. The the sort of you know neutral to slightly positive competitive effects. Right, right. And and you got to have a lot of schools, right, to really move the needle. I mean, you notice when they had ten schools in five miles, it was you know significantly larger than when you have one school. So, all right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week, I'm David Griffith, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.